Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and today we are back with another Ask Austin Anything. So earlier this week, I broke my hiatus from going live on LinkedIn. Things have been a little busy in the Belsack household. We recently ended up purchasing a house, and that has been a an educational experience, especially in this market. So we've been going through all those processes, and then we're gearing up for the move. And things have been a little crazy. But I really miss having that connection, that place that that space where we could go back and forth and you all could ask me questions and I could answer them directly. So I hopped on a live on Wednesday and we did an Ask Austin Anything. And it was a ton of fun. We had a couple thousand people show up. They asked a bunch of great questions and I wasn't able to get to all of them. So I figured what I would do is go back through the comments and handpick a couple of the ones that I didn't get to, but I thought really deserved an answer. And I'm gonna feature the answers in those questions in today's episode. Now, the whole point of these episodes is to help you get answers to your burning questions. So if you want me to answer your question, feel free to send it to me in a text. My number is 20 one It's also in the show notes in case you forget or miss that. But you can ask me about anything, careers, job searching, side hustles, entrepreneurship, mental health in your career, what I'm reading, habits and routines, any of that good stuff. It's all fair game. But without further ado, let's jump into the questions for this Ask Austin Anything episode. So the first question comes from Trixie, and she asks, what's your best advice for setting yourself up for success in the first 90 days of a new position? And that's such a great question because we spend all this time job searching, right? And then we get the job and there tends to be this void of information for what to do next. And that first 90 day period, that initial 90 day period is so, so critical for a couple of reasons. But the biggest one is that you can essentially play that new person card right? So when you show up, you're not really expected to be working, you know, the full amount, right? You just simply don't have the work yet. And what I see a lot of people do in a new job is they go through their trainings, they do what they can, and then they just kind of sit on their phone or browse the internet or pretend to work for the extra couple of hours. And that time could be used so much more effectively. And if you make some small investments up front during that period, you are going to set yourself up for massive long-term success. So here's what I recommend doing. First and foremost, I would sit down with the people on your team and I would ask them who you should know and why. So essentially what we're trying to do is get a lay of the land, basically understand the org chart. Who are the big players in your department and in these different teams that you're gonna be working with? And why are they the big players? What do they influence? What do they impact? What kind of work do they do? And each person is gonna give you a different list, right? So something you can immediately do off the bat is prioritize by the the people's names who uh, show up most frequently, right? The, The names that get mentioned most often. Those are the folks you probably want to get to first. But what you want to do is come up with a list of all these people who could A, potentially impact your work in your current job, and B, might have an influence or impact on your trajectory at the company. So your ability to get promoted, your ability to get involved in projects and gain visibility. And then what you want to do is you want to make a habit of reaching out to each and every single one of these people. And you can just say something along the lines of, you know, hey, my name's Austin. I just started on so-and-so team in this role. 
I really want to get an understanding of the organization and everybody else and how our teams work together. So I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee, either in person or virtually, and just ask you a little bit more about what you do, what your team does, and how I can help all of us be more effective. So if you send that out, you're going to get a lot of yeses. You know, people are always down to take a new person out to coffee or to sit on a Zoom call with them for 30 minutes. That's just the culture at any good company, right? So then when you get in the call, you want to ask a couple of specific questions. So the first is to simply ask the person to share more about what they do. So what specifically do you work on and what specifically does your team do in your own words? And a lot of times other people will project stuff, right? They'll say, oh, you know, Dan over there, his team does so-and-so, but Dan may have a very different interpretation or definition of his team. So it can be really helpful to understand what that, what that sounds like from, you know, the person's or in the person's own words rather. Then the next thing that you want to ask is essentially if I could wave a magic wand and have my team change or do anything to help your team, what would it be? So we're basically saying to this person, if my team could do anything and that thing would benefit you, or if we could change something that would benefit the business, what would that be? And this question is fantastic because it's going to help you dig deeper into the relationship between the teams, but also the areas of opportunity or problems that exist that you could help solve. And then the last question is simply, what's your best piece of advice for somebody who's new at this company? So if you ask those three questions, you're going to get a ton of information. First and foremost, you're going to understand exactly what each team does and what each person in the organization does. So that's going to give you a lot of information that's going to help you interact with them and build relationships with them. Continuing that thread, understanding what your team could do or change to help that team basically gives you a blueprint for actions that you can take to actually solve their problems or help them capitalize on these opportunities. And that's going to get you a ton of visibility and a ton of credibility within the organization. And then finally, just asking them for their best piece of advice. One gets you good advice, but also gives you something that you can follow up on. So if they say, you know, I'd really recommend that you read this book or take this course or talk to this other person, you can go do that thing. And then you can report back to them and say, hey, I took your advice and it was really helpful. You know, thank you so much. And now they feel valued. They feel like a mentor. And that's going to help you continue to build that relationship. So this doesn't have to be crazy. You could do one of these coffee chats or coffee meetings a day. um, So maybe five per week. And you don't need to get through hundreds of people, right? I think really in the ballpark of 20 to 30, maybe even 40 people, if you can, is is a good starting point. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but if you're able to understand the definitions and the problems and the opportunities for 30 to 40 people at a company, you are going to be in a fantastic position to help those people succeed and therefore help yourself succeed. So that would be my best advice within the first 90 days. Try to book as many of those conversations as you can. Try to ask those questions. And then last tip, pro tip, but if you have a spreadsheet where you can keep track of that information, you can write down people's answers. That's just going to help you remember more of this information so that you can reference it. So that was our first question. I loved it, Trixie. Thank you for asking. Our second shifts gears into LinkedIn. So this question comes from Imtiaz and he is asking, what is your process for content creation on LinkedIn? So how do you come up with posts? Uh, Do you write them in advance or do you write them on the fly? What does that look like for you? So for me, historically, I've 
written posts mostly on the fly. But I'm going to preface this whole thing by saying that my situation is a bit unique. So what I mean by that is before I ever seriously got started on LinkedIn in terms of creating content and creating a personal brand, I had been writing about careers on the Cultivated Culture blog for two to three years. I think about three years at that point, actually. So I had three years of showing up daily and basically writing, you know, 200, 500, 1,000 plus words all about these topics, right? And then on top of that, for that same three-year period, I was engaging with our community. So I was taking discovery calls with people. I was coaching people. I was doing, you know, ask me anything back then as well. I was getting emails from people. So I had a ton of data from the folks who were in my audience, right? I knew their pain points. I knew their desires. I knew how that all broke out for different levels of experience in different industries and so on and so forth. And I came into LinkedIn armed with all of that information. So it was much, much easier for me to begin creating content because I essentially had three years of practice creating content and also listening to my audience. So I'll preface everything I'm going to say with that. But essentially for me, uh, LinkedIn posts come at different times and inspiration hits uh, sort of randomly, right? So the main areas where I draw inspiration are one, through conversations. So whether that's a conversation with somebody in the audience, whether it's uh, a coaching session with a, a client or somebody in our community, whether it's you know a question that one of our members asks in our course communities, the answer that I give is great post fodder, right? You know, if somebody comes with a question or a problem that we haven't really talked about before, that's a great opportunity because I know that when one person has a question, especially if I see this question two, three times, I know that there's probably dozens, if not hundreds of other people that have this question as well. So that's one of the first places I look is just the engagements with my community. Now, another place that I go is just inspiration through LinkedIn. So every single day I show up on LinkedIn and I have a specific set of people who I engage with. So I have about 20 folks on a bookmark list and I will go through each of their post feeds every day to see their most recent post. And I read their posts and then I leave a comment and I typically try to leave what I call value-driven comments, which are more than just, you know, love this or great tips, but I try to add some value. I try to add to the conversation. And a lot of times those value-driven comments that I create are the beginning of a post because I'll get inspired and I really like what this person had shared. And so when I start replying, I, I submit my comment and then I go right into the notes app on my phone and I basically flesh out that whole thing into a LinkedIn post. So I get a lot of inspiration from that exercise, but also just through looking through my feed in general. So when I'm just scrolling through my LinkedIn feed and I see what other people are posting about, there's a lot of opportunities for me to say, you know, that's a really interesting story. I like the way they told that. I have my own story along those lines. Maybe I could tell it in a similar way, or maybe somebody shares an experience and I have a similar experience or a different experience. And I think that's worth sharing. Or maybe somebody shares a tip that I think could actually use some more depth and detail. Well, maybe I'll share a similar tip, but provide more of that depth and detail. There's a lot of inspiration that comes from from reading through the post feeds and just seeing what other people are sharing on LinkedIn. And then another place I go is just through content consumption, right? So listening to podcasts every day, that's something I do every morning. Reading books, uh, another thing that I do every morning, just reading articles online, right? When you hear other people having conversations and when you're in this mode of learning and soaking up information, and you also understand how that information applies to your audience and your, your messaging, 
that is a great opportunity to get inspiration for so many posts, right? So I'll listen to a podcast episode and I'll hear somebody talk about a new cold emailing technique. And I'll think about how that could apply to our strategies in you know the cultivated culture system. And that's just one hypothetical example. But there's so many great ways to, to get inspiration from what other people are talking about. So those are a couple of, of ways that I draw inspiration. But I'm thinking you know about this stuff in the back of my mind, pretty much all day, you know, I'm not consciously thinking about what's my next LinkedIn post, but sometimes I'll have an idea and my brain, I've sort of trained my brain to say, let's create that, create a post out of that. So I've, I've sort of honed this skill of when I have an idea or when I say something valuable, or at least that I think is valuable, my brain automatically says, can we make a post out of that? And that, that wasn't the case when I started. I really had to be intentional about training my brain to do that for a couple of months. And and then it became second nature. So now what happens is when I have that idea, I just go into my phone and I keep, I have a massive note of post drafts in there. I go into my phone. I just write down as much of the idea as I can. Sometimes it's a full fledged, you know, hundred percent baked post that I wrote in two minutes. Sometimes it's, you know, the first three lines of the post. And then I come back later and I flesh it out. It really varies based on how much time I have and you know w- what else is going on around me and, and all of that. But I try to just add ideas constantly. And that way I can always go back and flesh one out or I always have a backlog of 10 to 15 posts ready to go. So that's how the process happens. But a lot of that is stuff that you'd hear anywhere, right? Like, oh, go get inspiration from seeing what other people post or reading articles or whatever it is. I think the big reason I'm able to do it this way is because I've had had so much practice writing about careers and talking to my audience in the past. So the content creation piece is natural. For a lot of folks, the actual creation of the content is not natural. I talked to so many people who are getting started who said they spent, you know, four hours trying to write a post. And that's obviously very different than two to five minutes, which is sort of what I average. So that that is not a realistic expectation, two to five minutes when you're starting out. But I also think that you don't want to let perfection become the enemy of good or done or published. So spending four hours isn't isn't the best idea either. Instead, I would try to you know spend some, spend some good time, feel good about it. But if you're 80% of the way there, 70% of the way there, just press publish and just get in the habit of pushing content out. Because once you start sharing consistently, that's really where the magic is going to happen. That's where you're going to be forced to refine your processes. And that's where you're going to find a system that works for you. So I really, really like that question. I like talking about LinkedIn and content creation. Um, so that was a perfect tee up for that. Now, our third question comes from Ralph. And Ralph asks, what are your thoughts about ending a job interview midway into it when you know that it's not a good fit? And I would say that that's a fantastic move because you don't want to end up in a job that you're not happy with. And it's really a win-win for everybody involved, right? So if you know that it's not a fit, if you continue down the path, one, you're wasting your own time. The silver lining is that if you need some practice and you want to get you know better at interviewing, there's no better situation than a real live interview process. So if you do feel like you need some more practice, then that is one reason for you to continue going down that path. And I would say that the ROI there is actually pretty good. So I might recommend that. But if you feel pretty confident about your interviewing skills, and if you feel like you're in a good place uh, in terms of your ability to, to sell yourself, then 
it's not really worth your time or the people on the other end of the table, their time to continue the process, right? So you're actually doing them more of a favor if you reach out and say, hey, I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with everybody here. I love this company. I love the team. You know, I love the conversations I've had, but I think this role isn't the best fit for me for X, Y, and Z reasons. And you can be honest, you know, you don't want to be brutally honest in the sense of, you know, I don't think this role is for me because I talked to Jenna and she was a total jerk and I don't want to work with her. Or, you know, I I don't think this role is for me because it seems like your guy's finances are in the toilet. You don't want to do that kind of stuff. But if there's a legitimate thing where you say, you know, I am really hoping to jump into a role where I'm focused more on the client side of, you know, X, Y, and Z. And this role seems like it's more on, it's more behind the scenes. It's a little bit more technical. And so there's a bit of a disconnect there. So one, you can say, you know, am I right in assuming that? Am I right with that statement? And you can actually see, you know, what the people on the other side say. But then you can also say, you know, if you do want to continue, you know, with some sort of process at that company, you could just put out what you're looking for. You know, hey, here are the reasons why I think this isn't a fit. Here's exactly what I'm looking for. Are there other opportunities that match that? And if not, would it be possible for us to stay in touch? And then also something that you can do is offer up a referral if that's something that you feel like is available to you. Because if you're going to drop out of the process, you know, they have to pick somebody else. And if you throw somebody in the mix who ends up being a really good fit, you're now seen as a big value add. And then by also offering to continue the conversation, you can keep the relationship going with a lot of these people who can keep their ear to the ground for you when roles that are aligned with what you're looking for open up because they already had you in, right? They already saw something in you, some sort of potential that they liked. There's no reason why they wouldn't bring you back in for another role that's more aligned. And then lastly, and weirdly, when you remove yourself from the process, you actually pick up a lot of leverage, which is something interesting that I've seen with both my personal experience and also with the people that that I've worked with. But when you do take that step back, you actually sort of elevate yourself a little bit. And I almost find that that there's a shift in the relationship that you can leverage again for that relationship building side of things. And then also for making that ask about jumping into other roles. So I definitely think that if you certainly know a role is not a good fit, backing out of the process is a good move unless you feel like you could really use some practice on your interview skills, in which case you could continue forward with it. But Ralph, that was a great question. Uh, Appreciate you asking. Michael has our next question. And Michael asks, would you suggest networking with companies who do not currently have an opening? So my answer is yes, with a caveat that these companies are your dream companies, right? Your your top tier, you know, top choice places because relationship building really takes a lot of time. And so we don't just want to do this anywhere and everywhere, right? But if you have, let's say your list of 10 to 15 target companies and your top five to seven companies, let's say a bunch of them don't have openings right now, it is absolutely worth proactively building relationships with folks at those companies. Why? Well, the main reason is that great companies, great teams, they're always expanding, right? They're always growing. They're always looking to get headcount. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, but what happens when that headcount opens? Well, it's typically announced internally first. And this is at a team meeting or in an email. And, you know, the hiring manager says, hey, team, we have, we got approved for this headcount. You know, we're opening up this role. Or if you or anybody you know wants to work in this role, you know, feel free to send them my way or, you know, send me your resume or whatever it is. And then there's typically a little bit of a lag between that announcement and when the role is actually posted online. And this is essentially what 
people call the hidden job market. But during that period, during that lag between the internal announcement and the online posting, internal employees and their referrals are the ones getting in the door and they're the ones being interviewed. And typically, they're the ones who are most likely to be selected in any process, simply because, you know, the data just shows that internal employees and and their referrals tend to hit more of the metrics that companies are looking for. They tend to be less risky. They tend to be more loyal. They tend to be more productive. They tend to generate more value. All of these things that companies want are associated with internal employees and referrals. So those people are not only getting a huge head start, but also already have an advantage just given the way that they're getting in the door. So it's really, really hard when you're a cold applicant to beat a lot of these people out. And that's probably why you hear, you know, 40% uh, to 80% of higher are being filled via referral, that's exactly what's happening here. It's a combination of those two factors. So the only way for you to get into that, you know, hidden job market or to get into that sort of early access for the role is to already have the relationships in place. Now, the the pro of this is that when you build relationships ahead of time, one, there's no time crunch. There's no pressure on, I need this role immediately. And so I need to convert this relationship. So you can play a bit of a longer game. And then second, you can actually get a lot more information out of this person because you're playing a longer game. So a nugget here, a nugget there, and then you know a third nugget and a fourth nugget, they all add up to a much larger pool of information than you might be able to get if you were trying to rush into this role and, and work this relationship as quickly as you could. So there are some pros. The cons are that it does take a little bit more time, right? You have to be a little more patient and have that runway. But yes, if you are really, really excited about these companies and they don't have roles open right now, I would still recommend reaching out to people at those companies, building relationships with them so that you can be in the pole position to be referred in when that next role opens up. So awesome question, Michael. Thank you for, for that one. Our next one comes from Lisa. And this is this is a great one. So Lisa asks, should we have all the requirements listed in a job description in order to apply for it? And I love this question because the answer is a resounding no. And I actually posted about this a while ago on LinkedIn and I got flamed by a lot of people in the HR and recruitment space saying, you know, oh, you know, the job, the job description is the job description and the qualifications are the qualifications and don't waste my time time, blah, blah, blah. And I get where they're coming from because there are, uh, you know, the online application system has made it so that people are just blindly throwing resumes into portals. And the reason they do that is because they're so used to not hearing back that they feel like, well, shoot, if I just throw my resume into every single opening that's out there, whether or not I'm qualified, you know, I'm putting a lot of stuff out there. I, I My chances of hearing back are a little bit higher just by sheer volume. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, what it does do is frustrate a lot of recruiters and, and folks in HR because they get, uh, they put an opening out, they get 500 resumes and 400 of them are like totally irrelevant or, or not personalized or, or just like way off base. So I understand that. But What I'm getting at more so is this. If you know that you can do this job, then you should apply. It doesn't really matter what the credential match looks like. And I'll explain that in a second. But just to unpack that a little bit, you know, when we look at a job description and we see what's there, we have a gut feeling around, I can do this job or no, this is like way over my head. And so if it's way over your head, don't apply for it. That doesn't make sense. You're not going to be happy. And you're also going to have a really tough time in that process. But if you look at that posting and you say, I know I can do this job. If I'm able to work my way in, I know I can make this happen. Then you should absolutely apply for it. And here's the thing about job descriptions. They are essentially wish lists, right? 
if you're a company, you have to put yourself in the company's shoes. If you're a company, you are looking for the best, most qualified candidate for the least amount of dollars. That's basically the the business case behind hiring, right? That's the game that they play. So what they're going to do is put out everything that they could possibly want, right? And it's going to be like, you know, it's a month before Christmas and I'm writing a letter to Santa. I'm going to throw out a bunch of stuff. And if Santa only brings back two or three of those things, I'm going to be super happy, but I might as well ask for the other stuff because if I don't ask for it, I'm not going to get it. So that's exactly what these these employers are thinking when they write job descriptions. So I would not ever look at a job description and say, I need 100% of the qualifications in order to apply for this role. Instead, what I would say is, can I do this role? And if the answer is yes, then you need to do a couple of things. First, you need to look at the role itself and you need to see how many qualifications you match up for. And if you match up for a lot of them, then you can submit an online application and feel a bit more confident while you know still needing to kind of go the, the relationship in the VVP route. If you don't meet a lot of the qualifications, we need to take a step back and think about our process here because the traditional path is certainly not going to work for us. If we're not able to match up with those keywords or align with them, we're going to have a really, really tough time. So we're going to really have to heavily lean into the relationship and the VVP process. We also may have to invest some additional time in some skill building as well. So that's the first thing. But what I would really do is think of qualifications as an equation, right? So we had an episode on this a a little while back, but basically if we rewind back to middle school algebra, right? You would have your test and the question would be solve for X. And there were many ways to do that, right? There were different theorems and frameworks and formulas that you could use to solve for X. There wasn't one way to get there. It's the same thing with the job description. You know, just because it says we need five years of experience, it doesn't mean that the company wants five years of experience. It means they want the the perceived value that they understand somebody with five years of experience to have, right? I know people who have five years of experience who suck at their jobs. I know people who have one year of experience who are better than the people with five years. And so the years of experience is kind of arbitrary. What they really want is the value that they associate with that number. So if we can take that value and have that be our target, how can we find another way to add five years worth of value? Can we do that through a value validation project? Can we do that through a referral? Can we do that through other value adds? And when you start to think about it that way, you're going to put yourself in a much better position to go after these roles that you might otherwise feel unqualified for on paper. So that's my rule of thumb. If you look at the job and you say, I know I can do this thing, then yes, you should go for it. You should submit the online application. You should hit those referrals hard, build those relationships. And you should also work to build a value validation project that really illustrates your value. So finally, last but not least, we have a question from Ocean who is asking, what are you reading these days? And I like this one. It's a little more fun on the personal side. So I actually have been crushing a lot of reading recently. So something I started towards the beginning of the year was I read this book called Atomic Habits from James Clear. And one thing that he mentioned, we well, mentioned a couple of things. So basically making your habit really, really small when you want to start one and then stacking it on top of a habit that you already do every day automatically. So I'd been wanting to read more, but I kept, you know, saying I didn't have time for it or this, that, or the other thing. So First, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to read five pages a day. And that was my starting point. And then I layered that on to a habit I do every day, which is shower. So every day I'm hopping in the shower after I exercise in the morning. And then immediately after I shower, I'm going to go crack open my book and I'm going to read 15 or five pages at, at the start. And that's what I did for the first 30 days. Now, the other caveat here was that I was 
forcing myself to try and read a lot of books that I genuinely wasn't interested in. I was burned out on a lot of business books and I felt like a lot of the business books I was being recommended, you know, all had the same messaging and info and stuff. And it was really a slog and I wasn't enjoying it. So I stopped and I actually started reading some fiction that was just super light, super fun. And so I started reading five pages a day. And what ended up happening was I would read the five pages in the morning, but the five would usually turn into more like 10 or 15 because I was enjoying the read. And then I would want to keep reading. So we actually started reading before bed in the evening. So now I've ended up reading last year, I think I read 12 books total. I've already read 12 books in in the first four months of, of 2021 here. So I basically uh, tripled my output and that, that's at least the, the projection right now. So over the last month, I've basically been reading 15 pages a day. That's my goal. I've kind of upped it five pages every month after the first two months. And the most recent books I read, both were, were on climate change. So one was Bill Gates's new book, called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Uh, And then most recently, I read a book called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, And they were both fascinating. So they're both on climate change and the impact that uh, climate is is going to have on our world. And David Wallace Wells paints a picture uh, of more, you know, here's what the world will look like. So here is, you know, if you woke up, it's 2100 and we haven't done anything to to curb carbon emissions. Here's what the world's going to look like. And Bill's book is sort of the flip side of that, where he's saying, you know, the world could look like that, but here are the technologies that we have. Here's where we need to get to, and here's a plan for it. So uh, it's really interesting to kind of get both sides of of the coin. Uh, and I'm a very climate conscious person. Cultivated culture is actually a carbon negative business. So basically, we we run our footprint uh, every year, both personally and as a business. And then I make investments into uh, carbon offsets or, or credits that basically eliminate our carbon footprint or offsets set it, if you will. So those were two really fantastic reads. And then I also read a a super cheesy book uh, that Lily recommended to me called The Proposal. Um, I think it's from Reese Witherspoon's book club. Uh, But we were down the beach and I I finished one of my books and I needed something. So I picked that up and it was fun. It was a breeze. Um, So yeah, that's what I'm I'm reading recently. But I also wanted to include the habit piece there because that has been super powerful for me. And Atomic Habits is also an awesome read. So I definitely recommend that if you haven't read it. So that does it for our Ask Austin Anything episode this month. I really appreciate all of you asking these questions and being a part of the community and listening to these episodes. So again, if you have a burning question that you want me to answer, shoot me a text at 201-479-9511. Again, my number's in the show notes as well. Let me know that you want it to be for an Ask Austin Anything. And again, it can be about job searching or careers, but also side hustles and entrepreneurship and mental health and what I'm reading and any of this other stuff. It's all fair game. My goal is to help you get the information that you need to be successful. But outside of that, as always, I'm super grateful that you listen to these episodes. If you like what you hear, reviews are always helpful on Apple or anywhere else that you listen. But outside of that, we'll see you in the next episode of the podcast.